VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Bloomberg Opinion. I'm Bonnie Quinn. This week... If you threaten other nations and try to use energy as a geopolitical weapon, energy-importing nations will find alternatives. All they want is energy, and if you tell them that the energy you provide is insecure, they will look for alternatives. And at the moment, obviously, there is an energy transition was already in a degree of swing, and it's really being fueled by what's happened. David Fickling on the year that hastened the greatest global energy transformation since the 1970s. Later... In the past, President Xi Jinping didn't quite have all the political power, but the next premier will probably be his man, and he will probably be Li Chang. And that means that the economic target is likely to be met, and that will have global financial implications going into commodities and asset prices. Shuli Ren on expectations for China's annual parliamentary meeting, the National People's Congress, starting Sunday. First, though, to Bloomberg Opinion's John Authors as we kick off a new month in markets. John, is this a market in the process of repricing coming to a conclusion or do we still have completely disparate opinions on what's going on out there? It it certainly looks at the moment as though we are repricing, that we are at least in the process of another wave towards accepting that rates will be higher for longer and that bond yields will have therefore to be higher. Briefly, you had 10-year yields here in the States hit 4% on Wednesday. Mm -hmm. You now have German two-year bond yields at a post-crisis high. They haven't been as high as they currently are, which is above 3% since the actual eve of the Lehman bankruptcy way back in 2008. So the move towards some kind of an acceptance that rates will have to stay higher... But also, it's not all negative and some kind of an acceptance that we're back to an economy that looks a bit more like what it was for many decades before. I notice uh, we're not using the word normal because we still don't know what normal is. I, 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 I'm not sure how much that helps mm. to, to use that. But, but uh, we're in, obviously, we're back in a world where inflation is relevant and a fact of life to be concerned about, really for the first time in three decades, I'd mm. say. And that obviously matters a lot. And we're also in a world, therefore, where permanent minimal interest rates can no longer. I I think we've now reached the point where everywhere outside of Japan accepts that that's no longer going to be the case, that we uh, have got out of that regime into a different one. You have to imagine that because 4% caused such a, I don't want to say shudder, but it definitely caused a reaction, that Mm. we're not done yet. That's not the peak. No. And again, it depends which countries you're looking at. Mm. Again, bear in mind, all of this is balanced against the fact that the economic news is broadly good. 
It's spectacularly good. I mean, that's part in, of the problem. Yes, exactly. <laughs> particularly in China, it's spectacularly good because it looks as though what many people, I must admit, including myself, were worried about is that when they released the COVID restrictions, you would have a really serious dose of the pandemic, which would slow them down for a while before they began then to enjoy economic benefits. It looks as though it hasn't been that severe, judging by how strongly their PMI data has improved. We're only just starting to get post-reopening data now, though, so we don't really know yet, right? No. Um, so it's possible we're, we're in the course of an overreaction. But but the, the first data that takes into account all of February does look very positive. Uh, and that, that makes... That makes a difference. That brings up the question of being data dependent, which is obviously what the Fed says it is Mm. all the time. What does that even mean anymore? Do we want strong data or do we want weak data at this Uh, point? I think data dependency really is more meaningful myself than it has been for a while in the sense that trying to work out what the Fed's reaction function would be, how hawkish it feels it needs to be, is beside the point for the time being. If inflation doesn't come down pretty swiftly, they will have to keep tightening the screws. The data we got last month, it wasn't that people changed their minds about how the the Fed would react. That really there was really no Fed speak that really shifted the market. It was just a series of data points that made it clear that higher rates were going to be needed. Mm. Or at least rates high for longer. Yes. And I think that's probably where we are for now. Like, there is enough uncertainty that we are all probably better off trying to work out where the economy is going than we are trying to work out how the Fed would react to it. As it stands at the moment, it's obviously reasonable to think that, that rates will be rising faster than people thought a month ago. John, is it possible in any scenario that the major economies, and I suppose I'm talking Europe, the US and China, avoid recession completely? It's, it's a bit like that line in Dumb and Dumber, where Jim Carrey <laughs> says, so you're telling me there's a chance? I mean, yeah, yeah there's a chance. Um I still find it very hard. Great. To, to well, see we're that. done. <laughs> <laughs> I still find it very hard to see that happening. Um, you, you, um, I mean, in the case of the US, obviously, there is this uh, this issue that the Fed is almost certainly not going to under hike. It might over hike. Mm. I believe them when they say that they're convinced that the, the greater risk is of letting inflation get under control than of overdoing it. Therefore, the more the economy does rally, the more there will be no choice but to squelch it. Is it conceivable that it's such a mild recession we eventually get that we don't really think of it as a recession? I, I guess that's possible. You had the the, one, the recession in the early 90s, the recession after, after the dot-com bubble were you know, not... The apologies to anybody who did happen to lose their job during those episodes. Mm. But it, in general, they were not major moments that really uh, affected the quality of life. And we didn't hear any complete horror stories out of earnings season. We didn't hear any. Well, again, that's another intriguing one is just how long that ball can stay in the mm. air. But yes, I think with earnings, the issue is that it's very difficult to raise rates to have a slowdown in activity without there being a very significant effect on profits. No, you're quite right. We haven't seen that big an impact thus far. 
when companies are still making profits, they still have money to reinvest or to inject into the rest of the markets via dividends or buybacks. It would probably suit the Fed better or those fighting inflation better if companies weren't doing so well. Yeah. So I, I think that's another instance where the fact that the lag in terms of really crimping economic activity after rates start to go up, that lag is proving longer than some had hoped. And that probably means ultimately that the chances of an overcorrection at the end of the cycle rise. Well, it's fascinating because even in places like Australia and New Zealand, where the lag isn't as long usually mm. because it goes straight to housing, yes. we're still seeing those central banks continue to have to raise rates. So it really is a phenomenally strange time. Will yes. there have to be books written about this monetary policy wise? Have we I, learned a lot? Um, I'm not sure we've learned very much yet. Mm. I mean, we were still learning about the financial crisis of 2008. I can remember thinking at the time, I'm probably going to have to spend the rest of my career <laughs> trying, to, trying to work out what just happened. <laughs> there are some very important senses in which the world is only now coming out of the post-crisis environment. And yeah, there's a very good argument that particularly COVID, possibly also the reaction to the invasion of Ukraine, were the shocks that were, were needed to knock us out of it. Whether in, in years to come there'll be an analogy with World War II ending the Depression after a similar amount of time, it's conceivable that you know a really bad, truly shocking event knocks the economy out of this sort of post-financial crash condition. Is it fair to say that when this is all over, if there is a this to be over, mm. problems that plagued economies like, for example, stagnation in Japan, no inflation in Japan, that mm. those won't be the problems that those economies are dealing with anymore? A lot of that comes down to demographics, I think, in the case, particularly in the case of Japan, which is obviously the of the leading countries, the one that dealt with a declining population first. It is quite intriguing that Japan does actually seem to have inflation. It's also quite intriguing for the first time in a generation. Yeah. It's also quite intriguing that even the uh, the new guy coming in at the Bank of Japan doesn't seem to be convinced that you can actually start tightening yet, that uh, he still sees the uh, return of inflation as something fragile. We are, I suppose you could say, Europe really does seem to have, you know, Europe had suffered Japanification for over a decade, and Europe does seem to have lifted out of it through a combination of COVID-19 and Vladimir Putin. It looks to me as though Japan probably has as well, but it's not that clear. And it certainly does. Europe has similar kind of ish demographic issues coming to those that are arrived a while ago in Japan. But there, there, are, there is the issue that uh, that shrinking population is less likely to you know, makes it more problematic. Not to mention China. Well, there is that too. Yes. <laughs> Bloomberg Opinions, John Authors. Next. The big consumers and the big exporters of oil agreed not to use this as a geopolitical weapon. And that's worked very well for oil exporting nations ever since. And so I think what's really striking about what happened over the past year is that Putin's actions around energy broke that five-decade pact between oil producers and consumers. David Fickling on some of the unintended consequences of Russia's war on Ukraine. This is Bloomberg Opinion. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. 
the lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. You're listening to Bloomberg Opinion. I'm Vani Quinn. Just more than a year ago, Russia invaded Ukraine. That set in motion a series of catastrophic events, including a shifting of decades-long energy relationships. Moscow didn't perhaps bank on that, accelerating the energy transition. But that's what it did. At least one silver lining, perhaps, in a very dark cloud. Bloomberg Opinion's David Fickling joins. So, David, Russia's invasion of Ukraine hastened a global energy transformation, as you put it in a recent article that's really a phenomenon of graphics and just information. There was an energy transformation in the works. By how much has the war actually hastened that transition? I think certainly early on after the invasion, there was an expectation that this was going to renew and, and underline the world's addiction to the fuels that Russia exports, oil and gas, and to a lesser extent, coal. I think what we can see now is how much those predictions have not been the case. I mean, you know, there was a report out just a couple of weeks ago by a Rystad, a Norwegian oil and gas consultancy. They reckon fossil fuel emissions globally will peak by 2025. This is something no one was predicting a few years back. You know, wind and solar generated a fifth of EU electricity last year. And the IEA, they reckon generation globally from gas and coal will stagnate through 2025, while renewable output grows about 9% a year. All these things are pointing in the same direction. And it's actually quite an old lesson of energy geopolitics, which is that if you threaten other nations and try to use energy as a geopolitical weapon, energy consuming nations, energy importing nations will find alternatives. All they want is energy. And if you tell them that the energy you provide is insecure, they will look for alternatives. And at the moment, obviously, there is an energy transition was already in a degree of swing and it's really being sort of fueled by what's happened. But David, 2025 is literally two years away. Are we saying peak fossil fuel in two years? 
Yeah, I mean, that's the forecast from Ryther, which is a Norwegian consultancy. Their roots are in oil and gas. These are not sort of energy transition advocates. But this is just looking at the numbers. Uh, the driver of that is what's happening in the power sector. And, of course, in the power sector, one thing that we saw over the past 10 years was a sort of frenemy situation between renewables and gas, where sometimes gas would just support renewables, but sometimes gas was sort of, especially in Europe, the competition for renewables. Gas in particular, and especially pipeline gas, has been the, the fuel that has suffered from this. Russia's fast exports of pipeline gas to Europe have gone away. And Europe is looking for alternatives. Now, a lot of that, some of that is coal. Some of that is, is LNG, the same gas, but a huge amount of it, if you look at the Repower EU program that they put through, is just advancing that energy transition. So, David, what happens to the OPEC hegemony then? Well, I, I mean, I think it's very interesting if you look at the history of the OPEC hegemony and how they have maintained their position over the past five decades. It's really been by not doing what Russia has done over the past year. Obviously, famously in 1973, OPEC, or rather OAPEC, the Arab nations in OPEC, threatened to use oil as a geopolitical weapon over the October war. And you had the crises that resulted from that over the 70s. And as a result of that, you did see a lot of demand destruction. You saw oil consumers switching to more efficient cars. Fuel oil generated a quarter of the world's electricity in 1972. Now it's about 2.5%. That was given up because it was seen as too risky. You saw the building of, of nuclear power stations, coal power stations. You saw the first start of serious sort of renewable work with Jimmy Carter putting solar panels on the White House and that sort of thing. Mm. But the pact that came at the end of that was really that the big consumers and the big exporters of oil agreed not to use this as a geopolitical weapon. And that's worked very well for oil exporting nations ever since. And so I think what's really striking about what happened over the past year is that Putin's actions around energy, around the invasion of Ukraine, sort of broke that five-decade pact between oil producers and consumers. And that's a problem for all oil exporters. Most of the others will probably do better, but it's potentially a very severe own goal for Russia. Yeah, for sure. Now, we do know that Russia is still managing to sell its oil at a discount to shadow markets and so on. We know that things like smaller, older vessels are being used to ship this oil. They're literally being repainted in sort of vessel chop shops, I guess, somewhere. And then also the possibility of oil spills has grown because of this. So what has changed beyond the fact that poorer countries are getting cheaper oil and Russia still gets some revenue from oil? Well, uh, that's right. And, and I think, you know, one thing that we see with this is that no one has a vested interest in rocking the boat too much. You know, Europe did not want to cut off its imports of Russian petroleum. And it was sort of really dragged kicking and screaming into it a lot of the time by Russia's own actions. And at this point, you know, we see, you mentioned developing countries. I mean, I think one of the most interesting dynamics we see right now is that a lot of this Russian crude is getting exported to India. India has some of the world's biggest oil refineries. And a lot of it is being refined in India and then exported back to Europe. And Europe's fairly happy to turn a blind eye to that because it wants cheaper refined products. Mm. Uh, it wants cheaper gasoline and diesel. So there's a grey market that's flourishing there. This has always happened. I mean, if you look at Glencore, of course, the world's biggest commodity trader, the real roots of Glencore, the time when that business really started to take off, was very much in the aftermath of the 70s oil crisis when Mark Rich, Glencore was formerly Mark Rich & Co., this sort of celebrated commodities trader. I mean, he made a lot of money from selling Iranian oil to Israel after the Iranian Revolution, which obviously neither Iran nor Israel wanted to admit that that was going yes. on. By acting as the middleman, Mark Rich was able to do very well out of that. And that's the sort of dynamic that we will see increasingly now. How much has a mild winter in northern countries contributed to this energy transition or to this ability to get past this difficult phase? And is it significant that this winter was mild or would every winter need to be mild in order for this to continue? 
Yeah, I think uh, that has certainly been a very lucky eventuality for Europe, that it didn't face those big draws on gas. I mean, if you look, it's remarkable, really, that the prices of oil and gas are lower now than they were before the war. Now, this winter was a crucial one. Next winter will also be a crucial one. They're not out of the woods yet. But I think beyond that, the threat of the weather starts to change because, you know, the great advantage of fuel and fossil fuels in particular is that they're very flexible. There is a global market for it. You can move it from one corner of the world to another. You can fairly easily increase production from fields. And obviously, you know, people like the IEA and OPEC track demand month by month or or indeed week by week. Mm. And producers are sort of adjusting their plans according to that. So there's that flexibility there. Of course, with this transition to renewables, renewables don't have that. You cannot produce more power from a wind farm than its sort of rated capacity. So that becomes a problem. And also, it takes a while to develop those new wind farms. It takes several years to plug them in to build transmission lines. However, beyond this winter, we really start to see the picture changing a lot. You know, Europe is locking down supplies of alternative energy. It doesn't need uh, Russia. So if we have another mild winter that Europe is able to make it through this year, then the sort of threat of that weapon really goes down substantially. So when you talk about renewables, we know that there are certain environmental problems with some of them still, right? So things like battery power and nuclear power, are they uncategorically better for the environment? Um, The big problem we're facing at the moment is that there is a fixed amount of carbon dioxide that we're able to pump into the atmosphere. And each year we pump about 36, 37 billion tonnes of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere and we're heading for geological limits about how much of that we can take before the atmosphere itself starts warming. And that's a battle that we have to sort of fight over the next 30 years. So certainly, you can certainly point to things you can point to. Gosh, there's a lot of, there'll be a lot of end-of-life waste from solar panels, you know, 30 years from now when, when we have to reconfigure them. But none of those really compare to the global scale of the challenge that we face with climate change at the moment. So I, I think they're, they're clearly superior, yes. I'm also thinking about things like cobalt mining and so on. I mean, I think that's an interesting thing, but I think if you look at the scale of different commodities, one thing to bear in mind is that an unusual thing about fuel is that we use it every single year. You know, every time you you fuel a car, you need more oil to fuel that car. Every ton of coal, you need to burn more coal. Whereas something like cobalt is used once. The volumes of global cobalt production are in the hundreds of thousands of tons, whereas the volumes of fossil fuel productions are in the tens of billions of tons. So in terms of the effect on the planet, there's pretty awful labor conditions and things like cobalt mining. But, you know, I don't think any of us are aiming for a sort of world of perfection where the resources that we're using produce no problems anywhere in the world. I think Mm. we, you know, we have a sort of global challenge that we have to face about keeping this planet where we can live in the sort of conditions that we've been used to living. Bloomberg Opinions, David Fickling. Next. A lot of things will get decided this time, and it will be one of the most interesting National People's Congress in recent years. Shuli Ren on the China Communist Party's National People's Congress kicking off Sunday. This is Bloomberg Opinion. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. 
Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication, it's fortitude, and it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years, and it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. You're listening to Bloomberg Opinion. I'm Vani Quinn. Markets are eagerly awaiting what emerges from the China Communist Party's National People's Congress starting Sunday. Bloomberg Opinion's Shuli Ren joins now for a discussion around what in particular markets will be watching. Shuli, first of all, give us an idea of how many people are involved, who are the key characters to watch and what will get decided at this event. A lot of things will get decided this time, and it will be one of the most interesting National People's Congress in recent years, because at this point, we're going to find out who the new premier will be, and all the key economic posts will be announced, such as the next central bank governor, the next head of a banking regulator, etc. And also very interesting is how China will set its world target, because that's going to affect a lot of global asset prices, such as commodities. The reason is that, you know, in the past, President Xi Jinping didn't quite have all the political power within him, right? Like, oftentimes, China's GDP targets were not met, and then he can toss the ball to current Premier Li Keqiang and say, okay, Li Keqiang didn't do the job. But the next Premier will probably be his man, and he will probably be Li Qiang. And that means that whatever the economic target that they're setting is likely to be met. And that will have global financial implications going into commodities and asset prices. Now, officials have been debating apparently whether to put that target at 5%, which would be faster than last year's 3%. Would that suggest, though, that Beijing would have to engage in more stimulus if it were to be a 5% target? I think 5% is doable because China has reopened and they are hoping that a consumer rebound could get them close to the 5% target. But the real debate, there has been some talk that, uh, you know, China may even target around 5.5%, in which case the government will have to use the normal stimulus measures. And that could say something about global inflation and asset prices. Yeah, and there will be positive and negative implications from that because local government balance sheets are completely ragged after the property crisis and COVID zero. What can Beijing ask of them, particularly when we know that 17 out of 31 are already at 120% debt to GDP, which is far higher than Beijing would ever want a local municipality to have debt at? Yeah, so that's going to be the very interesting thing to watch. I think for the Congress, people should look at two numbers. One is the GDP target. One is the fiscal deficit. Oh, a third number is how much 
quota that the central government allows local government to issue bond, the bond quota. Because as you said, the local government, they are very, very broke. I mean, last year's COVID control, just buying rapid tests and the PCR test alone cost one trillion yuan. And also like local governments rely on a quarter of their, actually 30% of their income on land sales, which was not happening because of the property slum. So really local governments have no money. And then if the government is still targeting, say, around 5.5% GDP growth, or like they do allowing a lot of bond quota, that means China will be even more indebted than before. Like, I mean, China's debt to GDP ratio is already at around 300%. If we're seeing 5.5% growth target, that number will have to be a lot higher. That's stunning. 300%, that's the central government's debt to GDP ratio? No, it's the whole country. So the central government's balance sheet is actually very clean. If you like hear about China's debt problem, it usually either comes from like real estate sector or from the local government. The local government has taken on a lot of debt. In fact, in China, there is this thing called the central government. Beijing clutches the wallet and the local governments hold the shovel. Oh, and that the ones that hold the shovel don't have any money. So, so they have to keep on borrowing. And that's a problem there. Well, CLSA is actually saying that regional governments are already spending 10.8% of their revenue on just interest payments. How can that be sustainable? Yes. Beijing will have to step in. And by Beijing, I yes. don't mean the municipality. Well, I mean, obviously, the central government. Yes, the central government will have to step in. And the central government has been trying to say, OK, let's just cut interest rates, right? And then lower the cost of borrowing for local governments. If the cost of borrowing was the same as before, it would be more than 10%. But the problem is right now, like everyone in mainland China, all the investors in mainland China know local government has this issue, right? They have become more apprehensive in terms of buying local government bonds. So just cutting interest rate alone is not going to be enough going forward. So at some point, I mean, economists have been saying for years that the central government has to take on some of the burden. I mean, that's what the U.S. government is doing, right? Like, what would um, that look but, like, but so Shuli? Far, what would that look like, Shuli, if the central government were to take on some of the burden? I mean, it certainly seems like it could if its debt-to-GDP ratio is pretty healthy. Yes. So what the central government could do, I mean, they, they could take a page out of the U.S. playbook, right? Like, basically, the finance ministry issue a lot of uh, bonds. And then the People's Bank of China buy a lot of bonds. It's the modern uh, monetary policy. But China has not done that at all. So that's one thing they could do. Another thing that is more the Chinese policy with Chinese characteristics is those so-called policy banks giving out loans to local governments. The policy banks, for instance, China Development Bank, that's a major policy bank. The other risk is that President Xi Jinping will want to talk about common prosperity, which will probably turn off investors around the world because common prosperity is not really what they want to hear about because that would probably necessarily mean more crackdowns, right? Yeah, so I think what's happening with the China market is that, you know, before like investors will say, oh, China is a long-term play because of its economic prospects. But China is changing. Like we, we already know the Chinese demographics is changing, right? Like uh, population started to dip. Young people are not having enough children. And then uh, another problem is all the crackdowns. So what global investors will do, you, you will start to see a lot of uh, so-called macro tourists. They come in and out, in and out. 
you know, when they're suddenly opening, they come by very quickly, and then they take profit after 30-40% uh, uh, capital gain. And we are already seeing that, right? And basically, China is becoming, like Japan in that sense, it's becoming rather than a long-term play, it's becoming a macro-tourist play. Wow. Now, will President Xi Jinping worry about macro-tourism, or will he accept it? He probably wouldn't like it. I mean, no government wants portfolio hot flows in and out. He probably wouldn't like it. Yeah. The other thing is the developers, surely. It looked like there was going to be this massive crackdown. Then he eased off. For Perhaps it was because COVID-0 was just so negative for the economy. But what's to become of the property sector? Is China already overdeveloped? I think so. China's property sector has two stories. If you look at like a tier one cities like Shanghai and Beijing, those property markets have stayed pretty firm because they are the financial and commercial hubs where everyone wants to go, right? But if you look at like the third tier or fourth tier cities, they were being very, very much overdeveloped. I mean, China's urbanization rate has stopped. And President Xi Jinping actually doesn't want so many people in like a smaller city, right? Mm. So the property sector's biggest problems are in the smaller cities, the ones that you have never heard of. They just have so much inventory. I don't know what the government is going to do about them. And then, of course, there's the tech crackdown. And the most recent chill that went through markets was when Baofun disappeared, who was apparently the banker to you know most of the tech companies. So then his company, Renaissance, said that he was helping the authorities with investigations. What does that phrase mean, Shuli? Helping is better than he is being investigated, that's for sure. Okay. Uh, so the, the market speculation is that he hired this ex-state-owned enterprises banker at a very high salary because that guy's expertise and social network in the SOE banks. I think that Baofan somehow got mired into President Xi Jinping anti-corruption crackdown in the financial services industry because, you know, like they own bankers, they have a lot of power in the economy, right, in terms of who they lend money to. And uh, there are now concerns regarding how those tech companies five years ago got so much funding in the first place. But it doesn't necessarily mean that we'll see a massive sell-off in these tech companies or that many of them will be put out of business. This might be just President Xi Jinping trying to right the ship. Yes, he's just trying to... Basically, China had a really crazy credit cycle and everybody got drunk from cheap credit. And now we are left with bad debt and bad investment. And President Xi Jinping got mad. And he's like, I'm going to claw back some money or punish some people. That's what he's doing. It's a new term for Xi Jinping as well, right? He recently sort of consolidated power. So he will want to appeal to his people. He will want to sort of not atone necessarily for COVID-0, but he will want to... I'm sure, and I'm speculating, but put a very positive outlook out there. Is there a chance that he might do something for consumption in that case, like give out vouchers or some kind of stimulus on that front? So far, China has not done that. Like there was a 1960s phrase, production first and then consumption next. And so far, the stimulus all goes to supporting small businesses and enterprises. So the government somehow is very reluctant to send consumption checks like what we have seen in the U.S. Somehow President Xi Jinping thinks that that will make people become very lazy Mm. and not want to see jobs. 
So, Shuri, in terms of the geopolitical implications of next week, what kind of President Xi Jinping will we see? We've definitely seen amped up face-offs between the United States and China. Even when there were opportunities to sort of back down, it seemed like the whole spy balloon thing got out of hand. The semiconductor chip 4 is getting a little bit perhaps out of hand. On the one hand, these are not relationship-ending moves, but on the other hand, they all point towards a more aggressive stance between the two countries. Will she be a little bit less amenable on the stage next week? I, uh, that's a great question. I mean, like at the last Congress, the Communist Party Congress in October, Xi Jinping was very defiant, you know, talking about a separate world order, etc. I think he may have learned his lesson because after that, there was a huge market sell off. A lot of foreign investors basically did this in the sense that they just exit China almost completely. Mm. Right. I think this time he will be a little bit more toned down. And it's not just foreign investors. I mean Chinese stock market also did terribly. People just felt like, oh, a war is coming. So this time if he's really focusing on economic growth, he will try to tone down geopolitical tension. Well, and added to that is the fact that he seems to be getting more and more ingrained with Russia again. So for many months, he was sort of standing on the sidelines. Now it looks like he might actually meet with Vladimir Putin or meet with some Russian representatives. Do we know if it's in order to try to negotiate some kind of peace or some kind of armistice? Or is it to actually provide Russia with some kind of aid? I truly feel that China has nothing to gain, nothing economic to gain from this war because Ukraine used to be a major agricultural exporter into China as well. For some reason, President Xi wanted to be the peacemaker. He wanted to be the elevated world leader, but I don't know how that can be achieved. So the cheaper oil that China may or may not be getting from Russia, but probably is, that is not enough to offset the lack of grains from Ukraine. Is that correct? That's correct. So if you were to guess, and I guess most investors are making educated guesses now, you would say that that situation is getting incrementally more dangerous. I agree. So, I mean, it seems to me that Russia is obsessed with this war. I mean, what can President Xi do to stop that obsession, right? Like, there has to be some kind of breakthrough on the military front. It cannot be a stalemate, right, at this point. But would she go as far as to actually provide weaponry? I don't think so. I mean, she has been very careful over the last year not to test U.S. sanctions. Yeah. What about Taiwan? Very careful. Yeah, exactly. What about Taiwan, Shuli? Uh, The U.S. again, in a sort of poking the bear maneuver, and Taiwan has been asking for this, I guess, did up the number of people that it was sending to Taiwan to help train the Taiwanese army. But really, the number is 200. It had been 30. These are probably extraordinarily competent and excellent people, but, you know, 200 only goes so far. Is the U.S. getting a lot more worried about China breaching the Taiwan security wall? Well, I think the U.S. is genuinely worried that China is going to rise as a competing superpower. And Taiwan is a proxy. Bloomberg Opinions, Shuli Ren. That does it for this week's opinion. Do feel free to get in touch. I'm at Bonnie Quinn on Twitter or email me at vquinn at Bloomberg.net. We're produced by Eric Mollo. Stay with us. Today's top stories and global business headlines are coming up right now.
To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.